He's a St. Louis radio legend. Controversial. Outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Landy. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? Well, we're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us, and that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm, I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will... That'll come with, you know, in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop, Dal Maxville, to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the Men's Basketball Committee, for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunvold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary, and John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA. Tim Don, he joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deere visiting with us, the Hall of Famer, and, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song? Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans. And one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie, was head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengal guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? Holy cow. And a good Friday afternoon, St. Louis, and all points north, east, south, and west. We welcome you in. This is the Monster Energy Drink. 
STL-cars.com, Window World, King's Court, right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. Now you can hear the show live here every Monday through Friday from noon to 2, but also on our podcast right here on our website, as well as Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Anchor, and any place that you listen to podcasts, you'll find this one. On our website, just go to Episodes and Monster Energy Drink, King's Court, and you will find us for our sports show. Our morning show completed, of course, this morning, but here we are today in the wake of the All-Star Game coming up on Tuesday. The Cardinals going to Chicago, not to play the Cubs, though, but to play the White Sox this weekend in a series finale before the All-Star break. They beat the uh, Marlins 3 to nothing last night. Jack Flaherty pitched six and two-thirds innings, gave up nine hits, two walks, but still was able to shut out the Marlins for that six and two-thirds innings. Amazing how much trouble Flaherty pitches in and out of, and we'll get into that as we go along. We'll also talk about the name, image, and likeness money and the situation that's going on in the state of Missouri for college athletes and now high school athletes, believe it or not. Unbelievable stuff. We'll take a look at the Cardinals at the All-Star break. It's When the All-Star break occurs, you're going to be eight, nine games into the second season, second half of the season already. So time is running out on the Cardinals if it hasn't already run out completely. But our good friends at Monster Energy Drink are responsible for bringing you this show along with our other sponsors as well. But I'm telling you right now, folks, when you need that boost of energy, that push, that focus, that punch, you need Monster Energy Drink. They do things differently at Monster because it's not just a drink, it's a lifestyle in a can. And they have a relentless pursuit of victory, of being your best, of being at the top of your game, the most badass energy drink on the planet. Monster Energy, unleash the beast. You'll see it all the time at uh, concerts where they bring concerts to your hometown, different sporting events, different athletes are sponsored by Monster Energy. They really do unleash the beast in those athletes, and you can see it all the time. And you can hear it right here every single day, Monday through Friday. Our phone lines are always open for you, 636-348-4460, Well, I mentioned that the Cardinals won last night 3 to nothing. Flaherty pitching. Now, he's been constantly in trouble all year long. And he gets out of it a lot of times. Other times he does not. But it's not a strategy to ingratiate yourself with the locals. I'll tell you, when you're constantly in trouble, there's not much good to say about that. But the local newspaper, now this is Flaherty's probably fourth or fifth decent start of the season. But the bottom line even after last night's game, is a record that's not great and an earned run average that's not great. You're looking at a guy who the Cardinals hope to be their ace. He has a 4.27 earned run average, a 6-5 and record, although a 6-5 and record on this team is probably pretty good. But let's go through Flaherty's record if you want to take a look at his season because when I say it's been mixed – He pitches in and out of trouble more than anyone I've ever seen. Just recently, his starts. 
The two starts this month have both been good for the first time all year. He's put back-to-back starts together that were good. But the two, So he's gone 12 and two-thirds innings in the last two games, but he's given up 13 hits. But no one has scored on him. He can pitch out of trouble as, good, as well as anybody. But take a look at the two previous starts. In 10 and two-thirds innings, 12 earned runs, 20 hits. This is a guy who has given those kinds of games up. He gave up 10 runs to the Angels earlier in the year in just two and a third innings. He gave up five to the Dodgers in four and two-thirds, four to the Arizona Diamondbacks in six innings. And then he combines with back-to-back shutout games. Not complete game shutouts, mind you. But two six-plus inning games where no one scored. So who is the real Jack Flaherty? Well, we don't know who he is as a pitcher, but I think we get an indication of who he is as a person through various things that he's done since his Cardinal career began. For instance, he's the guy who decided to become a sympathizer of Black Lives Matter and wear all kinds of Black Lives Matter slogans on his shoes. The Cardinals foolishly allowed that. And I think when you allow something like that, you create a fissure in your locker room that really hasn't healed. This team is lost. We're talking about a team that won 3 to nothing last night but lost the three previous games to Miami. And I know Cardinal fans, being the Stepford fans that they are, they'll jump all over this game last night. Oh, my gosh, the Cardinals have found their way. If it weren't for Flaherty's knack for getting out of trouble, that would have been a loss. Lead-off doubles usually lead to runs. They didn't on two occasions last night, and the Cardinals were able to escape. Flaherty escaped a bases loaded jam. But Flaherty's the guy who has always been the woe is me kind of guy, never happy, you never see him smile, never cracks a joke, never seems to be enjoying himself, always seems to be miserable while making a lot of money. I've never understood that myself. A lot of ball players in every sport, really, but mostly baseball, it seems to me, always seem miserable. I remember playing as a little kid. Baseball was the most fun thing you could do. And you always played it with great joy. And we were not playing for a lot of money. In fact, we weren't playing for any. But we enjoyed it. We loved it. And that's why we played. It troubles me when I see Flaherty, when he's pitching and he gets taken out, or even when he's pitching during the game, but when he leaves the ball game, it's almost as though he's in mental pain, mental anguish all the time. And I just don't understand that. When you're watching a guy pitch a baseball for a living and making $4.5 million to do so, he's already made $16 million in his career. So that's troublesome to me. So when I say, will the real Jack Flaherty show up, I think we're seeing a good pitcher the last two games that he's pitched. But the real Jack Flaherty is not a guy you'd want to warm up to. Not a guy you'd want to look at as the poster boy for the Cardinals, even if he is successful. He really hasn't had much of a career here. He's constantly whined and moaned about leaving and going home and pitching for the Dodgers. The Dodgers don't want you, dude. And the Dodgers aren't very good. So for the Dodgers not to want you isn't saying much. And he doesn't win over fans either. Or reporters, for that matter. Remember in May, after he had had a bad game, a rather testy exchange in the locker room when he was asked about the decline of velocity on his fastball. 
The next time somebody wants to mention velocity on my fastball, just I'm not going to answer another question about like I'm going to play with the velocity on my fastball based on what the game calls for. So I, I can get outs at 90, I can get outs at 95. Like it's like I'm going to play with it. I've always played with it. I've, I've thrown freaking fastballs at 87 before in games when I've been at my best. Like I'm not answering questions on. Oh no no no! I'm, I'm just I'm just saying because y'all want to make a big deal out of it, and I'm tired of it like I'm not it's so ridiculous like I'm I've throw, I've, I'm gonna go for what the game calls for and that's that's hard of pitching so if you want to ask about it you don't understand the art of pitching well why don't you tell us about the art of pitching when you gave up 10 runs in two and a third innings earlier this year in a game apparently you didn't understand the art of pitching either but that's his answer when a reporter simply asked a question in May about the decline in velocity of his fastball a legitimate question stunned that someone actually answer, asked it But that was the answer that Flaherty gave. Not an engaging fellow. Not really a guy you want to cozy up to. Even as a a fan of the Cardinals, you wouldn't want to pick Flaherty as your favorite player. There's a lot of arrogance involved in Flaherty. And a lot of F you. Because he'd love to tell you that. Last night after he pitched a game where he escaped jam after jam, he talked about getting out of traffic on the bases. It's kind of what you got to do. You know, you find a point where you can get to during the game to, to get through and make pitches, and then uh, the runners get on. You got to got to find a way to keep them there, and you know, especially that runner on second. You know, two times I got righties up and got them and not allowed them to move the runner over, and then you know, got a couple flyouts, which you know, the game looks different if they're if they're able to move them over there. Um, and yeah, just you just make pitches when you need to. You start to get a little finer. He's a lot nicer when he pitches six and two-thirds innings of shutout baseball than he is when he gets bombed. And that's the difference between a classy ball player and one who's not. I, I tell this story, and I've told it before to other people. I don't know that I've told it on my show. But I was a young broadcaster at Channel 4 when Lou Brock was in his final season. And Gary Templeton was the Cardinals' up-and-coming star shortstop before Whitey Herzog had had enough of him and traded him to the Padres for Ozzie Smith. But I was in spring training, and as a new guy, kind of a new guy to the players, you know, just trying to get to know everybody. And so I asked Templeton, who was sitting in the dugout doing nothing, if he would do an interview. And he said, no, man, I don't have the time. Now, I was young, but I wasn't stupid. I looked around and thought, doesn't have the time. He's sitting in the dugout doing nothing. He's not doing a thing. Jim Toomey was the Cardinals' vice president of public relations at the time, and he motioned me over. And he said, don't don't bother with him. Don't even worry about him. He is what he is. And I always appreciated Jim Toomey's honesty, and I realized what he meant. Gary Templeton was an A1 jackass. Proved to be that as the years went by, whether it was his remaining years here or in San Diego or post-career. Remember, he's the guy who famously said about the All-Star voting, If he wasn't voted to start, he wouldn't go as a backup. His phrase was, if I ain't starting, I ain't departing. So this is what Flaherty reminds me of, a Gary Templeton. By the way, the the comparison I make to a classy player at that very spring training after Templeton had given me the cold shoulder, I saw Lou Brock and I asked Lou, who was ticketed for the Hall of Fame in his final year, 
if he would take a couple of minutes to do an interview, and he said, I absolutely will. He said, can you give me five swings in the batting cage? He's asking me to give him five swings in the batting cage. Of course, I said, hell no. No, of course, I, I'm teasing. So Lou was in the cage, and I was hanging around down by first base talking to some people, and he stepped out again after five swings and yelled down, I'm going to swing ten more. If you don't mind, then I'll be over. He came over, sat down, did a great interview, and I'll never forget that. That's why I always tell that story. The class of Lou Brock, the most highly mannered person I probably have ever met in sports, and the low class of Gary Templin. And that's what I see in Flaherty. I don't see any Lou Brock in Flaherty. I see a lot of Gary Templeton in Flaherty. And maybe the Cardinals will oblige him and get rid of him and trade him to some West Coast team for whom he'll forever be a headache. But I don't see the Cardinals ever winning with a guy like him on their team. And if they consider him to be their best guy, no chance. Cardinal manager Ali Marmel talked about Flaherty pitching out of jams last night and was very happy to see it. Yeah, even um, early on when he was kind of escaping, I mean, those big innings, a lot of it was first inning, bases loaded, ground ball to a player. He, he'd figure out a way out of it. Um, but he keeps his composure during those uh, moments, and he's done a nice job. Yeah, he did do a nice job if uh, composure had anything to do with it. Sometimes it's defense. But he didn't get rattled, and he didn't give up the big hit. It wasn't like the night before when Jordan Hicks was throwing the ball into the right field corner and the Cardinal defense played well behind him. Marmol went out to the mound in the seventh inning when Flaherty was in one of those jams. And most people, I think, thought Marmol was going to take him out of the game. I certainly did. Usually in baseball today, when the manager visits the mound, it means it's the end for the pitcher. Just a matter of making sure he had some left in the tank for one more hitter, and he said he did. Uh, it was his game at that point. I wanted to see that at bat. Um, so I just wanted to make sure he was good to go. He wanted him to. And uh, those are the games you want to see, man. I mean, Starter's out there doing his job, and uh, he, he deserves to get one more shot at that, that hitter in order to – and if he doesn't get him, then you go to the pen. But it was good to see. I like Marmo leaving him in the game. I like him going out and seeing if he can still pitch. A lot of pitchers won't tell you the truth, though. They think they have more left. What most managers do in those kinds of mound conversations is they'll ask the catcher rather than the pitcher because the pitcher's never going to say, hey, take me out, or not normally anyway. But the catcher's usually honest. So he did leave him in. In fact, I would have left him in anyhow. I don't believe in taking a pitcher out when he's throwing a shutout. Unless he's injured or he begs me to take him out, I don't know a pitcher ever in the history of baseball who would do that. But I've never understood that, and that's the way the game has changed and not for the better. But you couldn't take Bob Gibson out if you took a team of horses out there with you. There's no way he's leaving the mound. Remember, this is a guy, Bob Gibson, who pitched after he broke his leg. He was hit by the line drive off the bat of Roberto Clemente right in the shin, broke his leg, and pitched to two more batters. How many major league pitchers today do you think would continue to pitch with a broken leg? I will give you that answer. It has to do with a goose egg. It's a big old zero. It wouldn't happen. Now, the local newspaper wants you to believe that somehow Jack Flaherty has discovered some magic. 
The headline was Jack on the Attack. Flaherty follows past advice to save Cardinals. Shape his future. Save the Cardinals? It's one game. Shape his future? (laughs) According to some of the beat writers, he carries, Flaherty does anyway, a novel-sized journal... And he keeps a running tally of conversations that he has with himself. Now, we hear about these analytical nerds in the front office of teams now who have overcomplicated things. I would suggest to Flaherty, maybe throw your journal away and just go pitch. Players in the old days didn't need journals. They just pitched. I'm not even sure if players in the old days took much Stock in scouting reports on different hitters. Probably a good idea to do so, but a lot of them didn't. So when I said, "Here's you know what's coming: fastball, curveball, slider, maybe a changeup. See if you can hit it." So apparently, Flaherty's new piece of philosophy that he's written down in his book is be on the attack. Now. He's a major league pitcher, has been so for four or five years. I would think that you would be on the attack from the day you made it to the major leagues. Aren't you aggressive? That's the very nature of being a professional athlete is to be aggressive. Many are not, but I wouldn't think that that's some major piece of philosophy you need to write down in a book. But Flaherty does. So the Cardinals win the game last night 3 to nothing, and they were looking over in the other dugout if they cared to look, at the Marlins manager, Skip Schumacher. Now, Schumacher played for the Cardinals. It was Schumacher that scored the lone run in that epic battle between Chris Carpenter and Roy Halladay in the 2011 first round of the playoffs, Game 5, winner-take-all against the Phillies. Carpenter outduels Schumacher, or excuse me, outduels Halliday one nothing. Schumacher scores the only run. Cardinals go on to win the World Series in seven games. That was the David Freeze season, postseason, when he became probably the one of the greatest legendary icons in Cardinal postseason history. Perhaps the best. Maybe the greatest. I don't know of anybody who's performed better than David Freeze did in that postseason as an everyday player. Pitchers, maybe. Gibson. But Schumacher now manages the Miami Marlins. Schumacher was on the Cardinals bench until the Marlins hired him away. But he wasn't on the Cardinal bench as a manager. He was there as a coach. And it makes you wonder, as the Marlins are playing extremely well, Schumacher is a number one candidate probably right now, along with Bruce Bochy for manager of the year, though they're both in different leagues. But I wonder how the Cardinals feel about their former bench coach managing the Marlins, surprisingly, into second place in their division and having a great year. Now, if you're keeping track, uh, you, you might add Schumacher to the list of all-stars, rookies of the year, and Cy Young Award winners that have departed the Cardinals under John Mozeliak. Now, they didn't win those Cy Youngs, and they didn't win those Rookies of the Year, and they didn't get to the All-Star Games as Cardinals. All of them did so elsewhere. 
Skip Schumacher didn't get the Cardinals managing job. Instead, it went to Ali Marmol for some bizarre reason. And now Schumacher is going to be probably the manager of the year. There's plenty of games left to go, but it looks like that. And those other guys I'm talking about, and I mention them quite often, and our phone lines are open if you want to weigh in. You can tell me that I'm all wet if you want. 636-348-4460. 348-4460. But you've got Sandy Alcantara down in Miami pitching for those Marlins. You've got Zach Gallen, who just made his first all-star team this year pitching for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Gallon and Alcantara were the package of a deal traded to the Marlins for Marcel Ozuna. Ozuna now plays outfield for the Atlanta Braves. Not very well, mind you, but the Cardinals got nothing in return because Ozuna walked as a free agent. Randy Rosarina is the Rookie of the Year, but he didn't win that award with the Cardinals. He won it with the Tampa Bay Rays, and that's where he plays now. He's a fixture in the middle of their lineup, hitting third or fourth on any given night and is extremely productive, and is an all-star. Adalis Garcia, a guy that John Moselock simply released, didn't even make a trade, certainly didn't evaluate his talent very well. When you release a player, you're telling that player that we don't even think you're good enough to get a bag of balls from another team. Moselock released him unceremoniously. Garcia has gone on to be a star with the Texas Rangers. He is a fixture in the middle of their lineup, hitting third or fourth is their leader in home runs and RBIs every year. And now he's in in the All-Star game again for the second time. So if you're counting, Sandy Alcantara has been an All-Star twice, Garcia an All-Star twice, Rosarina an All-Star twice, that's six, and now Zach Gallen makes his first. That's seven all-star appearances for four players that Moselock gave away. And in return, we have Matthew Libertor, the pitcher who got bombed by the Marlins night before last and who was immediately sent down to the minor leagues. So the Cardinals don't even have a player on their roster at the, at the major league level that they got in return for four all-stars. One Cy Young winner, one Rookie of the Year, and perhaps a Cy Young winner this year in Gallon. So when you start adding this up, I warn you to add it all up and to pay attention to those facts because you're going to start hearing from the Cardinal PR machine pretty soon. You're going to start hearing uh, the media sycophants tell you, hey, you know, you can't be upset with John Moselock, 15 straight winning seasons under Moselock. That's special. We're going to hear all of that. We're going to hear ad nauseum probably about the 2011 World Series championship. Maybe we'll even hear about the 2013 World Series appearance. But the Cardinals haven't won a playoff game in the past decade. Well, I guess if, if, if you count 2014, yeah. So let's just say in the last nine years, they've won one playoff game. They've lost eight in a row. It's amazing, isn't it? But remember the team he took over in 2008 when he walked in. Jeff Lunau had been the head of the scouting department. He had put together these drafts and these teams. And they had staying power. But now it looks like the Cardinals are heading for their first losing season since 2007. And the plan of Moselock and the strategy 
is utter failure. You had a bad pitching rotation going into the offseason. You did nothing about it, and this is the result we're getting. The fans don't deserve these kinds of failures. If you wanted to add to the Skip Schumacher list, you could also say, hey, the Cardinals pitching coach last year is now in Texas calling the shots for the Rangers and their pitching staff, Mike Maddox. That team's in first place. Chris Carpenter was an ace on those Cardinal teams, the one that won the World Series in 2011, a teammate of Skip Schumacher. Is he coaching the Cardinals? No. But he's working with the L.A. Angels pitchers. It doesn't add up. What it says to me is the Cardinals are in free fall because John Moselock runs the operation. Now, the Cardinals just signed him to a contract extension in spring training that goes through 2025, and they sold it as sort of a transition contract. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's going to be fading out, or does that mean the DeWitts are going to transition all authority in the team to him? We don't know that. What would it take for Bill DeWitt to make a change? You can call and tell me what you think, but here's what I think. I don't think there's any possibility he'll make a change. I don't know what it would take. If this season doesn't tell you, if failure in your last eight playoff games doesn't tell you that it's time for a change, I don't know what it takes. This is the perfect time at the All-Star break. Tell Moselak to get moving somewhere else. Somewhere else. Because this doesn't make sense anymore. The Astros hired a new general manager after they won the World Series last year, Dana Brown. He's considered a draft guru. He's been a lifelong amateur scout. Tons of success stories. The Braves have Michael Harris II in their lineup, drafted by Dana Brown. Spencer Strider is with the Braves as well, a great pitcher, drafted by Dana Brown. Steven Strasburg, the ace of the Washington Nationals in their 2019 World Series run against those Astros, drafted by Dana Brown. That's why Jim Crane went out and got him. And the Astros had a depleted farm system. Now, why is their farm system depleted? Because they have promoted their guys that they drafted, almost every one of them successful, and other ones they traded away to get big pieces like Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, guys who helped them win the World Series in 2017 and again in 2022. Garrett Cole appeared in the World Series in 2019 with the Astros. Led them there. So they traded some of their draft picks. So their minor league system had been depleted. And that's why Jim Crane went out and got Dana Brown. The Cardinals minor league system is depleted. They haven't won the World Series since 2011. As I mentioned, they haven't won a playoff game since 2014, losing eight in a row. Dana Brown had a feature story done on him. And in it, he said... I'm passionate about the draft. It's all about nailing the draft. It's the future of the organization. At the end of the day, you have to take good players. There's no excuse. Well, that's probably the kind of guy I would hire, too. I mean, think about that. 
There's a guy that wants nothing else other than to win. And that's why he runs the draft for the Houston Astros. And John Mozeliak runs the draft for the St. Louis Cardinals. It's a big, big difference. A gigantic difference. And that's sad. So the Cardinals play tonight in Chicago against the White Sox. So after Flaherty, who do you have next? Well, the Cardinals are going to trot out Jordan Montgomery, who I guess would be the de facto ace of the team, even though he has a 6-7 and seven record. He has a 3.28 in run average. That's the best on the team. He's pitching against the White Sox ace, who's had a bit of a rough go of it this year, Dylan Cease. That's a toss-up game as far as I'm concerned. The White Sox are underachievers. Isn't it amazing that White Sox ownership, friends with Larusa, they originally hired Larusa to run the White Sox operation from the dugout years and years ago, but long before he went to the Oakland A's and long before he came to the Cardinals. And then they brought Larusa back after he'd retired, we thought, with the 2011 season in his back pocket. And he took over a White Sox team that was loaded with talent, had gotten to the playoffs the year before, then fired their manager just to hire Larusa. And while Larusa got to the playoffs that next season, that was supposedly a world championship contender, and they were defeated by the Astros handily in the playoffs. And then last year, Larusa started to sound like Joe Biden. He lost track of the innings in games. He lost track of the rules. And about midseason, he was done. So he took a contender for a World Series title and drove it into the ground, and that's where they are today. The White Sox aren't any good. Their record is very comparable to the Cardinals at 37-52. and 52, The White Sox, Cardinals are 36-51. and 51. Two teams that have fallen from grace awfully quickly square off in a series that nobody will care about. Literally, nobody will care about it. And I'm not so sure that people care about the All-Star game. The All-Star game once was a staple of baseball. But they've over-politicized it so much with the Atlanta debacle, moving it to Denver, thereby crippling minority-owned businesses in Atlanta behind the false reasoning of, oh, the state of Georgia has racist voter ID laws because they dared to require a voter ID to vote. Wow, heinous stuff. And so here we sit going to Seattle where they have tents and homeless people all over the place and they're trying to hurry them out of town and clean it up. Do these cities really believe that no one notices? So the All-Star game just doesn't have the pizzazz it once had. I remember when it came to St. Louis when the stadium was newly opened. I think it was 2006 if I recall. And it had a lot of jump to it then, but it's really deteriorated in recent years. It's the most boring four days of the, of the sports year. There's just nothing going on. And then teams will resume and join their teams after the All-Star break. They get an extra day off nowadays. It used to be a three-day break. And where will the Cardinals be? Well, we know where they'll be. They'll be in last place at the break. And it's, it's hard enough watching bad baseball, but it's doubly hard when you have to, if you watch, and you have to listen to the people broadcasting the game other than Chip Carey. 
I love to take people down a memory road visit, and let's go down there with Harry Carey on Stan Musial's final game and Bob Gibson's record-setting performance in the 68 World Series in Game 1 when he struck out 17 Detroit Tigers. The pitch to Musial. A hot shot on the ground and a right field at right hand. Let's go around third. Here's a no throw. The Cardinals lead. One to nothing. Listen to the crowd. Gibson broke the original record, then broke his own record in the same game. And there's nothing like hearing it from Harry Carey, is there? Nobody could paint word pictures like Harry Carey could on the radio or on television, for that matter. It didn't matter. And that's what we once got to listen to in this town. I feel for people who have to listen to the crap you listen to now. It's awful. Chip Carey and no one else. It's hard to listen to. It really is. But listening to Harry... It just, it makes you melt, doesn't it? Listen to the crowd. That was one of his phrases. He would, and then he'd go through the game and a couple of people here, Joe and Tom Smith from Springfield, Illinois, one of my favorite towns. Harry had a list of favorite towns that never ended. But I just love going back to those wonderful days of Cardinal baseball with the Golden Voices. Harry Carey, Jack Buck. Remember one time Joe Garagiola was in that booth. And I don't mean to sound like a fuddy-duddy, but I'm just telling you, when you have to put up with what you put up with today, people that say, you know what, it's nowhere near as good as it used to be, aren't complaining about something because they, they, they're they old. They're complaining about it because they remember what greatness was. Greatness was Harry Carey and Jack Buck. That was greatness. And those word pictures, you tell me if you're of a certain age group that you didn't take your transistor radio to bed with you, stick it under the pillow, and listen to Harry or Jack Buck bring you the Cardinal ball game. Remember the ball game started at 8 o'clock back in those days. So school nights... You were headed to bed. But there was Harry. Ready and rocking and ready to go, man. Those were some fun times. I want to tell you about our good friends from stl-cars.com. If you are thinking of a new vehicle this weekend and tomorrow your day off is the day that you'd usually go and you bang your head against the wall and try to figure out a way to get a good price and you'll go from dealership to dealership. In the meantime, you'll miss your kid's Little League game or you'll miss the plans your wife had for lunch, whatever it is. 
And when you come home, you'll be exhausted, and there goes your day off. Well, there's a way around that now. It's called stl-cars.com. Go to that website. Take a look at the over 1,000 vehicles, cars, SUVs, trucks. Pick the one you want. Call or text 314-626-3251, 314-626-3251. Ask for Don. Tell him the car you want. Tell him the price you want to pay, and then he'll get it for you. If you don't find the exact one you want on his website, tell him that. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm looking for. He'll go find it for you and bring it to you. I've bought my last three vehicles that way. My son just got one, an SUV, delivered from Alabama. Mine last one was delivered from Memphis, Tennessee. 314-626-3251. They're a locally owned and operated a, a company right here in Ellisville off Manchester Road. When you call or text that number, ask for Don. Tell him we sent you, and he'll take care of you, as he has for other friends of mine, listeners of the show, family members, stl-cars.com. You can't beat it. You just can't beat it. You know, I watched, I got caught up watching the College World Series in the past few weeks, and that's baseball like it ought to be. You got kids who sprint out of the batter's box, who know how to lay down a bunt when the time is right, who know how to play the game of advancing runners, putting them in scoring position, playing a team game. It's not always about you hitting a home run. It's about you moving the runner over so someone else can drive him in with a base hit. And watching the college game was so much fun, and then you have to come back and watch the major league game. And you know, it's not me that made the game dull. It's the players and the owners and the general managers and the managers. Who would have thought you'd have to put a pitch clock on the pitchers, a, a timer, to time them between pitches? Is it helping? I don't know that it's helping. It just doesn't seem like it makes sense to have to tell people, hey, get your ass in the batter's box or start throwing a pitch before someone falls asleep. But that's the state of baseball, and it'll be on full display on Tuesday in Seattle when we have the All-Star game. Over to Wimbledon, we have the record-breaking Novak Djokovic going for yet another Wimbledon singles title. This guy's pretty tough to beat, right? Back in 2019, Nick Kirogios said of, of Djokovic, I think he has a sick obsession with wanting to be liked. I feel like he just wants to be liked so much that I just can't stand him, he said. He called him a tool for complaining about quarantine regulations at the 2022 Australian Open. Djokovic said he didn't respect the Australian Open, and he didn't participate. He was held as almost a prisoner in Australia. Djokovic turned out to be right. He turned out to be the one player that said no to the vaccine insanity. Biden wouldn't let him in the United States. He couldn't play in the U.S. Open. The greatest tennis player in the world couldn't play in the, in the U.S. Open. Ponder that for a moment. How ridiculous is that? And so Djokovic hasn't played in the U.S. Open. And thus, he hasn't gotten those Grand Slam titles. 
that he probably would have gotten easily had he been allowed to play. But because politics had to enter into the picture, he wasn't allowed to play. He's playing in Wimbledon. He's 36 years old. How long will it be before we see him start to go the route of Roger Federer, in my opinion, the greatest tennis player I've ever watched, even though Djokovic has more wins, Grand Slam wins. That Australian Open that they jacked him around with in 2022, he went back this year and won it. He's won the Australian Open 10 times, the French Open three times, seven Wimbledon titles, three U.S. Open titles. I'm sure that he would have added another U.S. Open title had the imbecile allowed him to play. So if you're counting, Djokovic is the all-time leader in Grand Slam championships. Grand Slam titles, I should say. He's won 23 singles titles in Grand Slam events. I mean, it's unheard of. Federer's right around there. So is... um, who was the big left-hander? I can't think of his name off the top of my head, Doug, on it. But those guys are the top three, and then you've got other guys right in there too. But Roger Federer decided to be a ball boy after a sterling career as a tennis player. You don't find these kinds of guys in baseball. I'm sorry, but the kind of guys that play baseball today just aren't the kind of guys you want to be friends with. But these tennis players and golfers and even some football players, I don't even speak about NBA players. Why would I? But these are the kind of athletes I like to watch, and I like to watch Novak Djokovic compete because nobody can do it like him. And you're getting to see greatness if you're watching the uh, Wimbledon Championships this week. Absolute greatness. It's unbelievable. He's playing the third round today. He's playing against Stan Wawrinka. Stan Wawrinka used to be a very good player. In fact, I believe he was a Wimbledon finalist one year. And Wawrinka said, he's looking forward to it, but I know I can't beat him. (laughs) That reminds me of Jack Nicklaus, who used to say in about his competition in golf tournaments. There will be 75 or 80 players in the golf tournament. Let's say the 75 for argument's sake. He said 73 of them knew they couldn't beat me, and they knew that I knew they couldn't beat me. So he was really playing two players. Those two players were usually Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. Those were the big three, if you remember, that put golf on the map as a television sport. But Djokovic, who couldn't come to the United States to play, is playing in England, and he's playing spectacular tennis yet again. So as we reach the midpoint way of the baseball season, and we have surpassed the midpoint way in terms of games played, it's always fun in baseball, I think, to look around and and, and to say, well, who would we pick as the best? 
I think it's pretty simple. In the National League, it's Ronald Acuna Jr. who would be the MVP right now. And in the American League, it's very simple. You would have Acuna as the MVP, excuse me, uh, Shotei Otani as the MVP and the Cy Young winner. I mean, the numbers that that kid is putting up are beyond spectacular. It's unreal. First time since Babe Ruth that we've seen this. Pretty incredible stuff. Pretty incredible stuff. Right now, he's hit 31 home runs. That leads all of Major League Baseball. And he's a free agent at the end of the year. Now, what does that mean? Will the Cardinals come after him? No. Don't get crazy now. I had texted Bill DeWitt because someone had told me that Otani was a guy that wanted to play for the Cardinals. I found out later that wasn't true necessarily, but I think Otani, like other players, will go where the money tells him to go. But he's an Asian player in Southern California. uh, Seems to be a landing spot. He plays for the Angels now. The Dodgers, of course, are going to make a big offer. But he's such a star. I mean, it's, it's really hard to top him. You're paying a player for two positions because he's a, an all-star pitcher and an all-star player, everyday player. It's pretty impressive stuff. And nobody can come close. I mean, not even close. He's just so good. Right now, I mentioned his 31 home runs. He's also 7-4 and four on the mound for the Angels with a 3.32 earned run average. There's nobody like him in baseball. He also has 15 doubles. He's driven in 68 runs. And he's hitting 296. So he's by far and away the MVP. And Ronald Acuna Jr. is having a year. We've got seven or eight players in Major League Baseball that are hitting 300. So when I tell you that fact, and then we mention Ronald Acuna Jr., and you say, wow, with a, with a league that has nobody hitting 300 virtually, then Acuna Jr. pops up from the Braves, And you take a look at what he's doing, and he's just punishing the ball. 337 average at the break. He's stolen 41 bases. The first guy uh, to do 41 steals and 40, uh, excuse me, 40 steals and 20 home runs combined before the All Star break. It's reminiscent of his 2019 season when he had 41 home runs. Stole 37 bases, but he's that was for the season. He's hit 21 home runs, driven in 54, stolen 41 bases, and is hitting 337. As I mentioned, you'll be lucky to find 8, 10 guys that are hitting 300 in the entire major leagues. And that's why the Braves are running away with their division. 
Otani is single-handedly trying to keep the Angels in it. But those are your two MVPs. And as far as I'm concerned, Otani is also the Cy Young winner. So he's going to win the Cy Young and the MVP. Now that, I think, hasn't happened since Justin Verlander did it. So it's recently been done, but it doesn't happen very often because they have the Cy Young for the pitchers, and the MVP is usually for the hitters, but every now and then a pitcher comes along and is so dominant that he wins the MVP and the Cy Young. And that's what Otani's going to do this year, I think, in the American League. It's just it's just too easy. Now, the Cy Young will be a little bit more elusive for him, but he's going to win the MVP. He's going to have to turn it on on the mound. Seven wins at the All-Star break. Let's say he gets 15 for the year. That might not do it. But he's certainly going to be the the leader when it comes to the MVP award. His seven wins trail Shane McClanahan's 11. There's several guys in front of him with 10. But in the American League, there's only Nathan Yovaldi ahead of him, along with McClanahan. So he's, well, I take that back. Zach Eflin is there with nine. And Kelly has nine, too. So he's got he's to step it up there. But he could still win the Cy Young with a hot second half, but he's going to win the MVP. So there's your MVPs. Now let's see if those hold out. It's difficult sometimes to follow up the first half of the season with a spectacular second half. Now keep in mind, they'll only have about 70 games or so left when the All-Star break ends. And at that point, we'll see how it goes. Mike Trout is out of the lineup for the Angels, so that means the protection for Otani is gone. We'll see if that works. Phone lines open 636-348-4460. 348-4460. Our good friends at Monster Energy Drink want you to have yourself a good punch for the day, for the weekend. Start it out with that extra punch of energy and grab yourself a can of Monster Energy Drink in any one of the number of flavors that they have with that famous Claw M on the can or the bottle. And keep in mind always that Monster Energy Drink is different It's not just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can. And when you have a Monster Energy drink, you've unleashed the beast. It's the most badass energy drink on the planet. Monster Energy drink. And they bring you our show every day, two of our shows, the morning and this afternoon, of course. They bring you both. And so do the good folks at Window World and the good folks at stl-cars.com and Taco Bell. In fact, we should get Shohei Otani his own Taco Bell franchise out in California. How nice would that be? But we support locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations here. And that's why we love their breakfast menu with the wonderful grilled breakfast burrito with bacon bits for just a dollar off the dollar crave menu. Double stuffed tacos are just a dollar. They have a $5 crave menu as well. You can get a double chalupa in a box with two tacos and a soft drink for five bucks. Two different AM Crunch Wraps for breakfast are under $3. The Grande Scrambler is under $3. It's amazing, isn't it? 
And we support the locally owned Taco Bell locations. They're all over our area. There's one in the Chesterfield Valley, Cape Girardeau, Jackson, Missouri, Union, St. Clair. They're over in Illinois as well, in Columbia, Waterloo, Jerseyville. There's plenty of more. I'm just naming a few. But any one of those are the ones that we support. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Jerry West, the great Jerry West from Laker fame, will walk down memory lane with Jerry and let you uh, hear the story of a life and his life that should be covered in roses was marred by depression. This is one of the most successful basketball players, one of the most successful basketball executives in the game's history. And yet he wasn't happy. And we'll have that interview for you when we return. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see If I could read your mind, love Just like a paperback novel The kind the drugstore sells When you reach the part Where the heartaches come The hero would be me The hero often fails And you won't read that book again Because the ending just Chains upon my feet. The story. 
you laugh I never thought I could feel this way And I've got to say that I just don't get it I don't know where we went wrong But the feeling's gone And I just can't get it back Welcome you back in. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink. Window World, STL-Cars.com. Kings Court on KevinSlaytonShow.com. Here's here from noon to 2 in our sports show every Monday through Friday. And, of course, the podcast uh, during the uh, the day, anytime you want to listen to it, once we're off the air. And that can be heard on our website, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Anchor, any place that you find yourself listening to podcasts. The great folks at Monster Energy Drink helping bring you our show every single day. A lot of companies spend their ad money on agencies and TV commercials and billboards, but not Monster Energy Drink. They try to do things differently because they know it's not a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can. If you haven't had it, it'll give you that extra push to get you through the day. Mondays are necessary for Monster Energy Drink, I can tell you that. And if you got a big weekend planned, you might need there too. Guarantee you that. All right, I mentioned Jerry West. Jerry West was a boyhood idol of mine when I watched him play for the Lakers when I was growing up. My dad used to take us down to the Lakers-Hawks games at Keele Auditorium when I was a little boy on a Sunday afternoon game. That's when the Hawks always played on a Sunday afternoon. They played during the week too, but that was when we could go. And we watched it when the Lakers would come to town and Keele Auditorium was packed and those great Laker teams would normally beat the Hawks. But Jerry West was a legend, and he was a part of that Laker team that won 33 games in a row. That was with Wilt Chamberlain. And, of course, he's an NBA champion. The logo for the NBA, that, um, what would you call it? I can't, I can never think of the word. But it has the player, and the player's likeness is Jerry West. They incorporated their logo into Jerry West. That's how important he was to the league. And, of course, with the Lakers, he orchestrated championship team after championship team. And so a guy that should have enjoyed nothing but success was troubled by depression. And he wrote about it in his book, and we were fortunate enough to catch up with him. And here's that conversation. And we welcome you back in. This is the Patchful Ribbon Gateway View of GMC Kings Court. Kevin Slayton with you, and we are uh, honored. We don't, uh, we're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports, and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us, and that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West: My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? We're doing well. It's great to have you aboard. Um, let, let me just run down some numbers for people who aren't familiar. Well, I'm sure they're familiar, but they may not be used to your career as opposed to today's modern-day players. 14 All-Star appearances, 12 All-NBA team uh, uh, selections, 5 All-Defensive team, 25,000 points without a three-point line, better than 6,000 assists, 5,000 rebounds, and only 932 games. 
27 points a game, almost seven assists and six rebounds, and you played the guard position. How many would you have scored with a three-point line, Jerry? <laughs> well, you know, you're never sure of things like that, but certainly uh, gives and adds a, a dimension to the game that uh, we did not have when we played. Um, uh, today, uh, many coaches uh, realize that uh, this is an important aspect of a game. Uh, it can change the course of the game, two or three three-point shots in a row, and you can erase big deficits uh, where you couldn't uh, in the past. But uh, uh, certainly it would have been something that uh, I wish we would have had when I played because in many situations uh, it's certainly going to help you uh, win more games. But more importantly, it's going to add the point totals uh, of players who have the ability to shoot that shot. Jerry West, one of the great players, coached the Lakers, was a monumentally successful general manager winning the Lakers winning seven NBA championships. He built that great dynasty uh, under Pat Riley with Magic, Kareem, James Worthy, and the, the the Showtime Lakers. Later, Phil Jackson with Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Jerry, an Olympic gold medal. You did it all. And yet, as I read your book, I felt there was a lot of sadness in it. Well, you know, I was really uh, very fortunate to be working with people who, uh, you know, put you in a position to... Uh, encourage and support decisions that needed to be made that uh, some people may not have done that. And Jerry Buss, who I worked very closely with uh, during his time there owning the Lakers, and uh, he recently passed away, I, I guess, over a year ago. And um, uh, just having him uh, there, uh, who was a new owner, but more importantly, he had a real clear vision of what he wanted to try to accomplish as an owner. And for me, uh, a young general manager or someone who had no, uh, you know, educational training to do that, um, it was important to have someone like him to encourage you and, and more importantly to, to listen to some of the ideas that you have where other people might have thought that uh, today might have thought uh, maybe this isn't a wise uh, a choice for us to do in terms of player personnel and also salaries that were that were very much a part of uh, uh, the uh, economic system in the NBA then, and uh, certainly a bigger part today as the salaries have escalated, and also the growth of the league. Jerry West is our guest, Mr. Clutch, Mr. Outside, Zeke from Cabin Creek, one of the greats of all time. His book is West by West. Jerry, I mentioned sadness. Uh, your, when your brother died uh, in Vietnam when you were a younger uh, kid, that really shaped you as, as a person the rest of your life, didn't it? question he was a big influence in my life and, and uh, I will correct you it was Korea I meant Korea I'm sorry I apologize and, uh, uh, but anyway he was a, a huge influence I think uh, in our family um, I've often said uh, he was the greatest brother that anyone could have but more importantly he was one of the greatest people that uh, uh, that you'd ever want to meet uh, he was deeply religious he was um, a person that uh, everyone who came in contact with him uh, they would always say what an easy smile and what a great person he was to be around. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, uh, because of the way I was at that point in my life where very quiet, very shy, um, that was a, a huge turning point in my life for me, uh, not only as a person, but uh, uh, maybe uh, what I started to think about might allow me to do something a little bit different 
um, with my life because I knew that uh, um, I knew that something that I always felt he was watching over me in, in terms of uh, you know my young life. So anyway, it was um, uh, it was a huge shock not only to me but to, to the people who know him, especially his family. And Jerry, you talk about uh, that you were a shy kid. You you, can't, you went to West Virginia, played on the 1960 Olympic team, won the gold medal, probably one of the greatest teams ever assembled. All kinds of success with the Lakers, finally winning the NBA championship as a player, certainly as a general manager, even more success. What were the qualities inside of you that had to come out to achieve that kind of success? Well, I've always felt that, you know, some people are driven, okay? And I don't think you can um, look at people and, and say, well, this person is driven. He wants to accomplish something a little bit different. I was always one of those people. You know, if I loved the outdoors, and, and uh, to me it was like a whole new world when I could get away from the very few people that were around me at that point in time anyway, I always expected to see, you know, the biggest whatever animal or, or more importantly, catch the biggest fish. And, and then, you know, I fell in love with basketball, and that uh, – that in itself uh, really propelled me to have the kind of work ethic and more more importantly the dedication um, uh, to get to the point in my life where I felt like maybe I was a little bit better than the average player at that point in time and particularly early in my career. Uh, it's not something I would tell everyone, but I think those things, and I've always said that you know, you're, you're given God-given gifts, and I could run and jump like um, like players in our league couldn't do then and uh that propelled me a little bit but i've always felt that uh, outside of skill uh probably the greatest um the greatest asset a person can have is a strong work ethic regardless of what you're doing with your life you know you just just put yourself in a position that no one's going to outwork you uh no one's going to uh you're going to be grittier than the average person and i think that's something i possess from a very early age of my life Jerry West is our guest. His book is West by West. Jerry, you talk about, and there's a, it's a no-holds-barred book. I mean, you talk about everything very honestly with regard to yourself and relationships you had with owners, coaches, and players, and teammates. And Phil Jackson is an interesting character because it was a non-relationship that you had basically with him. Jerry Bush you had a good relationship with, but Jack Kent Cook, who owned the Lakers before that, not so much. Well, you know, I'd say Phil had, had a lot of success, and, and uh, you know, he wanted to do things his way, which coaches should do. They also should have the dynamics, but uh, for whatever reason, we didn't have the kind of relationship you'd want uh, with someone that you personally um, put yourself in a position to convince the owner to hire. And uh, I did that. I just thought we needed. We'd been changing coaches too much. I felt his. Uh, his uh, skill set as a as a coach was going to be something that would allow our players to uh, get to the next level because we were very very talented, and uh, uh, he was he, he's someone who did that. But I just didn't have a work uh, working relationship with him, and you know a lot of people have asked me about it. I said, you know, I said it's not terrible. But I just didn't have a working relationship with him, and. Uh, you know, obviously, those are the things I think when you look back in your life, you start to wonder was, you know, was was that Phil? Was was it me? Um, I really don't know. But uh, as I said, I've always felt that working relationships with people, and particularly in sports, 
are just paramount to success because you know you can go to coaches sometimes and say hey look you know I think we can get this player from another team through a trade uh, what do you think um, I think that's important to to uh, exchange dialogue about players on your team about players that could be available in the league and I did not have that kind of relationship with him at all but uh, at the end of, at the end of the day uh, you know we made the right decision. Um, you know, I pushed for that to have him there, and um, as I say, it was just something that, um, you know, looking back on it, I've often wondered uh, why we didn't have a better relationship. But uh, as I say, that's not something I really dwell on because, to me, it's about winning. Uh, it's not about personal things. You do things uh, internally to give yourself the best opportunity to, to have a championship-caliber team. Uh, because each year there's going to be one team that's going to be real happy and a number that are not going to be very happy. <clears throat> and we were always right there close to having championship teams. We won an awful lot of games there uh, during my time with the Lakers. And and uh, it was just uh, it was fantastic for the owner to believe in me, to give me a chance to be uh, someone who didn't have the formal training, as I mentioned before, to give me an opportunity to uh, do something that really uh, was part of my life um, and say more importantly um, an extension of kind of my childhood dreams to be candid with you. Jerry West, our guest, the, one of the greatest ever, perhaps the greatest guard in the history of basketball with us. His book is West by West. Jerry, as, as big as your name was to players who were drafted by the Lakers, and I, would, I tried to put myself in that position, if the Lakers wanted me and they drafted me, and someone said to me, well, Jerry West is picking you up at the airport. I would have been stunned, but you did that regularly. As you write in the book, you picked up more people at the airport than most cab drivers. Well, you know, as I say, uh, you know, today kids are uh, uh, a little bit different today because they have more people around them in, in terms of uh, people who uh, have cared for them from the time they're small, you know, the AU guys and everything. But I always felt it was very important. Uh, particularly with younger players, to let them know you cared about them. And uh, I would pick up players all the time. It was just so something I thought was important um, uh, to put, for them to know that, you know, this wasn't just another team. Uh, we tried to have a, a special environment there for the players. Uh, Jerry Buss set the standard for that. And, and at the end of the day, that was my personality. I, I, I remember when I got drafted, to be honest with you, it was one of the Weirdest things of all, um, I really didn't even know I was the second player taking a draft, and I didn't, really didn't know till the next day. And uh, had no one um, really to contact me uh, or uh, let me know I had been drafted. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's a significant time for any young player. And uh, I found out that uh, watching, you know, all the stuff that the NBA does to uh, to uh, prepare their players to come into the league, the, the you know the the, the 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 coming out party, the the day of the draft, uh, to watch those kids there today, uh, you know, often wondered what I would have felt like when you know somebody had said you know Jerry West, you're the number two player in the draft, you're selected by whoever, and um, to go up there and uh, be recognized, and uh, I can imagine how proud the parents and uh, and the kids who uh, today uh, who have such wide followings even before they get into the NBA because of all the publicity. I've often wondered, uh, you know, what that feeling would have been like. But uh, it 
it wasn't in our repertoire then, it wasn't the NBA's repertoire, because we were kind of a second-class league at that point in time. And little did any of us know that we, we would be part of this process of building this league um, through uh, uh, an action that was taken in 1964, um, boycotting the All-Star Game, which formed the first union in, in the uh, in the NBA. So I saw a lot of things. I saw the development of the league. I uh, saw the change of the league. So I see the stature of the league today, and it's really been a heck of a ride. And you, and you point out, Jerry, in the book, that the whole glorification of athletes is not healthy, not healthy at all, and dangerous, often leading to terrible disillusionment. Is that genie out of the bottle? It can never be put back? Well, you know, as I say, I, I just think that, that uh, to me, today it gets a little bit, for me, again, you must remember, I was, I'm not a pleasant, uh, I wasn't a present day player. I wasn't exposed to those things, but it's something that I would have felt uncomfortable with personally because that's who I was. I wasn't one of those kind of people. I don't believe in calling attention to yourself, and today that's what this is about. But it would have been a difficult task for me to, after every game, before games, to have so much press coverage of what you're trying to do and at the end of it, all, all you are is a person who has maybe unique talent and trying to do something that you love to do, compete and try to win. And uh, at, at some point in time, you just, you know, you just, enough is enough, okay? And uh, uh, we, we see that all the time in, in all walks of life, but particularly in sports today. Jerry West is our guest. This book is West by West. Jerry, when you were playing and the Lakers <clears throat> had, had a lot of struggles beating the Celtics in those days in those NBA finals, and I know that ate at you. And, in fact, in the book you wrote that maybe that's why you walked away from playing because you just couldn't deal with the pain of losing those championships. How difficult was that for you? Well, you know, for me, for me, we, you know, we were close so many times. We, we got beaten the finals eight times. And we won once in nine years that I was in the, uh, that I had an opportunity to participate in that. And it just got to the point where it was so frustrating for me that you felt like you were beating your head against the wall. And, um, um, there's two or three times and really once in the height of my career that I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. I just didn't. It was just too painful to have to, um, wake up and uh, read the newspapers the next day after you gotten beat in the finals and or to walk around and people would say things that were less than complimentary, uh, complimentary to you but uh, you know at the end of the, at the end of the day I think the thing that always kept me going were the people who supported me and encouraged me to um, continue to compete but um, I just felt that there was a this tremendous void in my life for not being able to get to the top of the mountain and, uh, you know, get close, but get to the top. And the one thing I've always felt, sometimes the view at the top is not nearly as as um, as good as the challenge in getting there, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, we judge players today by how many championships they win. Um, you know, I see players that don't get in very many games or contribute very little to teams winning, and it's, it's interesting to me to you know, introduce him four times NBA champion. I'm saying to myself, well, this guy never, he never did anything to help the team. He was just <laughs> part of the team. And, uh, those things were always frustrating for me. And, and I knew at the end of the day that 
you know, I had to get get rid of that stigma in terms of how I felt about stuff like that. But I do think we make such a uh, such a fuss about how many championships uh, players play on, and it's the thing that makes it is not one player, but uh, nature of really good players that sometimes you're able to assemble and uh, it happens not very often but it does happen and um, uh, it's just very very difficult uh, to keep teams together today because of salary Uh, but uh, at the end of the day I think that's the way that everyone judges everyone wants to cheer for a winner I'll tell you there's more great stories and more sad stories in a um, loser's locker room than there is winner's locker room that's for sure Jerry West is our guest, the great basketball player whose silhouette is the NBA logo. West by West is his book. Jerry, you've presided over some of the great transactions in NBA history. Uh, You were a teammate of Will Chamberlain's when they brought him to the Lakers. You were involved in bringing Magic Johnson to the Lakers, as well as Kobe Bryant. Magic Johnson, uh, you wrote that Magic feels that when you're not officially connected to the NBA, it's far worse for you than the stress and anxiety that you encounter on a daily basis running the Lakers. He says this because he's troubled by my seeming inability to find and sustain happiness when it doesn't involve basketball. Is that an accurate portrayal? Is the game the juice that makes you go? I didn't hear quite quite all of that question, okay? If you could repeat it, please. Sure. You wrote in your book that Magic Johnson is convinced that when you're not officially connected to the NBA, it's far worse for you than the stress and anxiety that you encountered running the Lakers, and that that's because of your seeming inability to find and sustain happiness when it doesn't involve basketball. Do you, is that is that assessment accurate, do you think? Is that the juice that makes Jerry West go? Well, you know, I'm not really sure about that because, again, one of the things I've never done and don't want to do is put myself in a, in a category that um, I'm better than someone else. I think all of us are, are given opportunities in life to try to um, – you know, to try to succeed at a certain level. And some people seem to do a little bit better job. Uh, maybe it's timing. Uh, I'm not sure. But I've often felt that one thing that leaders have to do, that they have to be able to make tough decisions, uh, regardless of what, um, you know, the press or other people think. Um, you know, Magic Johnson has had an incredible career. He was fun to be around. And, you know, it's impossible not to root for him. And uh, he was one of those players that was unique, and he still continues to be unique unique in in his um, success away from the game. And I've always appreciated all the nice things he said about me, but more importantly, um, you know, I've appreciated watching him play and being a part of his life. In this book, West by West, from Jerry West, our guest, you describe magic. Uh, in his early days with the Lakers because Norm Nixon wanted to handle the ball. And you say magic without the ball was merely Irvin, a Monet without his brush. That's a phenomenal description of one of the greatest players ever. Well, you know, sometimes things don't fit together perfectly. Even though we won a championship with uh, uh, Norm Nixon, who uh, obviously was very disturbed that he was traded, um, Irvin Johnson was a unique player, and again, if he didn't have the ball in his hands, that's where his genius was, not playing without the ball, the ball in his hands. And these are the kind of decisions that you make uh, that scare the heck out of you when you make, and more importantly, you incur the wrath of the fans, and many of them were Norm Norm 
that, that I coached really liked him, uh, still liking today, but he was uh, uh, put in a position to do something that uh, I think at the end of the day turned out really good for us to trade, um, and Irvin Johnson got a chance to be Magic Johnson instead of Irvin Johnson, uh, and he was just a genius with the ball, um, Monet with a painting, and he was a Monet with a basketball. And um, those are the kind of things you do sometimes. You go to bed, you go home at night, and you say, say, you know, what did I do? I traded someone that I really liked. And um, at the end of the day, it's not the owner. It's you that's going to get the, um, uh, the bulk of the criticism. The, and if it works out fine, you're going to be smart. If it doesn't, you're going to be dumb. And that's why I've never, I guess, never felt that, uh, regardless of what the press would write, positive or negatively, I've never paid any attention to what, frankly, they really say. It hurts when people say nasty things about you because maybe they don't know you. But, uh, you know, as a, as someone who's managing a, a team and, and working very closely with an owner, um, the idea is to protect the owner and not yourself. And uh, that's what happened in Los Angeles to a bunch of things we did out there that really weren't popular with our fans nor more the press. But... At the end of the day, I never, uh, writers could write what they wanted to. Um, and if they called me the next day about something particularly uh, mean-spirited they would write, I would always, people, I just didn't ignore them, period. I didn't uh, because I, I was not trying to help them do their job. But uh, the one thing I really felt was important was to be able to communicate with the same people who were writing positive things and also negative things. Jerry West is our guest. His book is West by West, one of the best books I've ever read, folks. If you're thinking of a of a present coming up for anybody in the holiday season as we approach it in the next couple of months, this is a great, great read if you like basketball. Jerry, when you coached, uh, you wrote in the book that if you were asked to diagram a play, you couldn't have done it. You wouldn't have known what to write down. You coached Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You mentioned that you didn't think he played hard enough and that you always regretted saying that. And you, you you made a statement that I am in such agreement with, and uh, I look at Kansas last year and Bill Self with the big kid Embiid, and you said, why no other big man has really learned to shoot the skyhook is a mystery to me. Why is that? Why don't coaches teach their big men that? Well, you know, I think, frankly, uh, the game's changed. Um, you know, kids today, when they first pick up a basketball, they start dribbling the ball and, you know, heck, they can dribble, 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 dribble like crazy. And, you know, they're shooting shots at guard shoot today. And all of a sudden you get this big growth spurt. And these are players that are more comfortable outside than they're inside. And uh, I know with Abdul-Jabbar, uh, you just don't see players like him. Uh, he was just incredible. And he did things so easily that it made you wonder sometimes, my God, if he'd only played harder. And, I, and, you know, it's probably one of the dumbest things that I, I guess I think I ever felt in my life because he was just so graceful that he made the game look easy. He was brilliant, smart, a great teammate. Um, he just had it all. And he had a completely different way about him. He's quiet, uh, introspective. And say, uh, he and I today have a great relationship today. But, um, the game is changing, and, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, uh, the coaches have changed the game. There's not nearly as many shots uh, in the game. It's a, it's a much more 
closely uh, contested game in the sense that, that uh, not not as many shots that have been taken before, uh, and the game is cha- and the three point shot has changed the game. But um, I just don't see a lot of players out there that are capable of doing that. I know Kansas had a uh, a player this year uh, who uh, was drafted number two, and I think if he hadn't got hurt, um, he would have been the number one pick. But uh, Joe Embiid, and uh, he's he's one of those unbelievably graceful big guys who has the potential to affect games and change, change games on the inside because that's where he's most comfortable, I think, playing on the inside. But uh, as I say, the game is changing all the time, and uh, you just see uh, different unique players. Uh, Kevin Durant from Texas, uh, one of the most unique players I think I've ever seen. Uh, watching him play, someone who's 6'11", 7 feet, and he plays, plays like someone 6'5". Uh, he's changed the game, and uh, speaking of him, I do think he's going to be the um, uh, the player that uh, maybe, if he stays healthy, will be the most the highest scored player in the history of basketball if he can stay healthy because he just has that kind of ability. Jerry West is our guest. Jerry, you were instrumental in bringing Kobe Bryant to the Lakers out of high school. Uh, what are the risk factors that you thought about when you decided to make that move? And can you explain to our listeners what went into that? Well, you know, it, it was, you know, we, we wanted to try to be able to pursue Abdul Jabbar, okay? And we had, we were, we were well under the salary cap at that point in time, and, and uh, you know, our ability to, to, uh, uh, to attract him to come to Los Angeles was based upon our history as a, uh, as a franchise in the sense that we won an awful lot. Um, and uh, we just felt that this would be the best place where he'd have a chance uh, um, to be able to uh, achieve his goals, and those goals were to win championships. But uh, uh, during that process, uh, you know, we wanted to try to, to get more under the cap and to have a maximum amount of money to do that. And Kobe Bryant was in the draft, and he was a young player who uh, everyone, um, you know, thought highly of, but at that point in time, it wasn't it wasn't in vogue for people to um, draft uh, high school kids. It just wasn't in vogue. And uh, so he, I thought we worked him out twice, and um, it was just amazing uh, the um, uh, the the ability he had, plus that kind of it factor. And that it factor was a work ethic and someone who just more than loved the game, and uh, we tried like crazy to, to trade for him. We tried and tried and tried all the way up and down through the draft, and uh, no one would take a starting uh, a starting center uh, off of our team by the name of Vlade Divac. And we were uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to trade uh, Vlade to, uh, to uh, Charlotte at that point in time, which is now New Orleans. And uh, he had a gr- terrific career down there. He, he was a very good center. And we got this young, uh, unproven player and, uh, and Kobe Bryant. And I told our owner the night of, of the draft when we, when we traded for him, I said to our owner, I said, I think we got the best player in the draft. And, uh, again, you know, when you trade a starting player for a player that was drafted 13th and say you've got the best player in the draft, <laughs> it takes some nerve to tell you, it takes some nerve to tell your owner that, that you, um, uh, uh, that you feel that, that this was an enormous trade for you. 
and uh, it turned out that way. He not only was a great player, but certain players have, uh, it's like they have, I call it gold dust, kind of sprinkled on their bodies, okay? And and you, when he was around, you just knew he was going to be special, and, and particularly uh, after a couple of years, um, we had an all-star player in Eddie Jones, and we were we traded Eddie Jones and put Kobe Bryant in our, our starting lineup because he was just simply a better player. He just wasn't experienced, and it worked out great for our franchise. And obviously, Kobe Bryant has had a storied career, and and um, you know something that was when I look back at uh, to, to see where he's come uh, as a player, and more importantly, his um, his ability to excite crowds, his ability to bring people in the building is more than a great player. It's someone who really adds value to your franchise in terms of the dollars he helps create at the box office and, and also the court and, and uh, hospitality uh, issues, um, uh, support from uh, corporations who want to be involved with you because you have something that other teams don't have. And we were very fortunate to have a number of those players and, and during my time in Los Angeles. But, you know, in writing a book like this, you always need someone to, um, uh, to, that you can talk to and talk about things that are intimate. And Jonathan Coleman, who was co-author of this book along with me, um, he just did a great job for me. He drugged things out of me that sometimes I was reluctant to talk about. And I didn't want to write a book that uh, embellished uh, my life as a player. I wanted to write a true, factual book. And to tell you that there were things about my life that um, uh, certainly weren't as glamorous as maybe my career was. And it's a fascinating read in that respect, Jerry, because you unveil yourself as a human being in this book, and you talk about all the highs, the lows, and the in-betweens. And not many guys do that when they're writing a book like that. Did you feel afterward uh, that you were happy that you did that? Well, you know, I know when you're talking about personal things, and you know, you see so many, um, you see so many people in this country who battle depression, and you know, unfortunately, some of them, um, you know, they kind of jump off the cliff. And, and here recently, Robin Williams and um, his battle with depression, and um, it's something that uh, I have battled all my life. You know, you had good days, bad days, but uh, I think that. And trying to explain it, there's no explanation for it, okay? Uh, something can set it off that um, that things will be going beautifully in the next minute. All of a sudden, you feel like you're at the bottom of the ocean. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, as an athlete, uh, you put so much pressure on yourself to excel, achieve, and more importantly, to try to win and win at the highest level. Uh, there was times when, uh, in a long season, you just looked at yourself and said, oh, my God, um, you know, what's going on with me? But for me, basketball was the thing that kept my mind off of, of uh, maybe how I was feeling about myself or things that were going on in my own mind. Um, and basketball was a diversion for me, and, and certainly uh, it helped me to get through some times in my life when uh, – um, I didn't feel very good about myself. And as we talk with Jerry West, uh, you with this wonderful, successful, wonderfully successful life, and Robin Williams with his wonderfully successful life. When people say, "How could someone like Robin Williams take his own life?" 
you probably understand that more than most. Oh, I completely understand it. I completely understand it. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes you get in these these dark places, as I call it, and it's um, they're difficult to get out of. You know, people talk about therapy. So certainly there's drugs that can help combat it. But uh, I do know that sometimes you you just feel like you're at the very, very bottom and what, you know, what causes you to feel that way, uh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, there's some awful, some awful successful people that have this problem. And, uh, you know, for them to um, have to put up with something that's um, not, it's not self-inflicted, that's for sure. It's something that you're either born with or, uh, or somehow it creeps into your life. But, um even talking to you about it, it's very difficult to talk about, but uh, there's times you just don't feel very worthwhile. I, I can imagine, and uh, I, I can't uh, salute you enough for being so open in your book and, and talking with us about it, too, uh, because I can only imagine how difficult it is. Jerry West is our guest. His book is phenomenal. It's called West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, uh, getting back to basketball real quickly, you brought Kobe Bryant to the Lakers, as we mentioned. Uh, you coached Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You played with Will Chamberlain. Shaquille O'Neal arrived under your watch, and the one guy that didn't that you wanted to get was Julius Irving, Dr. J. Tell our listeners how that story almost happened or didn't happen. Well, it happened, uh, you know, at that point in time, a lot of these franchises were having an awful lot of um, uh, trouble financially, okay? They weren't, they weren't successful, and, and a lot of teams don't make money today, contrary to what people think. But... Um, um, we had the number one pick in a draft. We had a very good team to start with. And, uh, I would, you know, it was a tough decision for us to make with Worthy and Dominique Wilkins. I love Dominique Wilkins, the excitement he brought to the game, but I just felt with the makeup of our team that, uh, uh, and talking to our scouts and everything else that he would be a better fit for us. And, um, we drafted him and obviously he was a tremendous player. Um, helped us win championships, but more importantly, uh, probably one of the great teammates you'd ever want to do, um, want to have. Um, but anyway, it's just, it's kind of crazy in the sense that, um, at that point in time, Utah had drafted Dominique Wilkins and they wanted to sell his, sell him. And I uh, tried to get the present owner then, uh, to, um, to, um, for us to put in a bid for him. And our owner didn't want to do it. And, uh, it was just, um, you know, just something that I felt would have helped fill the seats in our building. Uh, more importantly, uh, uh, to bring a player there that I really admired, uh, as a player, but it didn't work out that way, but it worked out best for us. And, uh, and we were thrilled with it. Jerry West, our guest, as we talk about his book, West by West. Jerry, you talked about players or, excuse me, coaches that you would have loved to have played for. And a bunch of them, Red Auerbach, Pat Riley, Bobby Knight, Greg Popovich, Red Holtzman, and as you say, strangely enough, even though you didn't have a relationship with him, Phil Jackson. Well, you know, as I say, I, I had, I think, five coaches uh, in my professional career, four or five, and it made no difference who was coaching me, and I don't mean that the way it sounds because I thought I was really easy to coach what they ever asked me to do. Uh, I did it. 
but there's certain coaches I think have have a different, unique way about them. Um, and uh, you always want to play for people that uh, maybe will help you be a better coach. Well, but more importantly, put you in a position where you can win more. And there's certain coaches that have done that better. Um, and I just have a, because it's such a difficult job. Uh, so you you know you look around and you say who could I who, who I, what I wanted to play for. And I know I, I just know that from watching teams play, I like teams that play together. I like teams that play hard. Uh, those are the kind of coaches I think that have done that better than others. Jerry, give us your best Will Chamberlain story as a teammate. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that would be very very difficult. Okay, it really would be. But um, you know, he was he he was just he was kind of a unique guy, and I always felt that you know that. Uh, and particularly when Elgin Baylor retired, and it was we were all a little bit older than the other players on our team, and and Elgin and I were incredible friends, and and um, one of the great players that ever played that never gets mentioned in that category, which is very sad, by the way. But uh, Wilt and I became uh, uh, not only teammates, but it was really pretty interesting. Um, that we would, um, after games, um, uh, we, we, a lot of times, days off and when we are on the road, we would eat together in rooms, uh, in, uh, in each other's room a lot of times, and, and normally his room because he always liked to, to hang around his room, and as all of us did, we didn't go out very much. And um, uh, But anyway, I remember one night, uh, it was a day before, we were going to play an afternoon game in, in uh, Detroit, and he said, come on up, let's have dinner. And I said, okay. And it was early because, uh, um, and I get up there and he said, what do you want? And I ordered something simple. Order. And I didn't know he had, he had ordered, but pretty soon here comes about four, um, um, four room service guys. And he had ordered seven different entrees, okay, <laughs> for himself. And I said to myself, I said, who else is coming for dinner? And he said, no one. He said, I just wanted to. A bite of each of each thing that they had here, but he was uh, he he was funny. He really was funny, and uh, I enjoyed my time with him. And there's so many things that uh, that are said. Uh, I remember one time we were in in Chicago on an airplane, and uh, it was you know we didn't fly private uh, as they do today, and we played a game in Chicago, and we had to get up very early. And most players don't, or at least I shouldn't say that. I would say that players are um, um, have different sleep patterns, and I just didn't sleep very much. And I know Wilt didn't sleep very much. And we get up bright and early, go to the airport. We had a 7 o'clock flight, and we're sitting out there, and they put us on the plane. They said there's going to be an hour's delay. Now, you remember there's an hour's time difference in, uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia from Chicago. So... We sat around there five or six times, I mean, five or six hours, and we, we had missed three other flights we could have taken. And uh, they know this plane's going to take off. And finally, we take off, and, and we're getting ready to take off. And Will, they called us back on the plane, they let us off. And Will walked on the plane, and everyone else was sitting there. And he said, If I had a, a gun, I think I would have, I think I would have taken off myself. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, here comes some security people. They take him off the airplane. And here we're going to Philadelphia, okay, without Will Chamberlain. And, 
everyone was laughing about. He's so tired, and he's just laughing about it. So we get there at the airport in Philadelphia about 5.15. We go to the hotel, drop our bags off, and go right to the game. No one's really eating anything, uh, no sleep, no nap, no you know typical routine that you have the day before a game. And we get to the game, and, and no word where Will is or whatever, right? And so we're all ready to go, and here comes all, all of a sudden it's about quarter mm, after uh, quarter, about ten after seven. Chamberlain walks in the room. The games usually typically start at seven thirty-five, and he was so mad that you know none of us defended him or anything. Well, we couldn't do anything about it, obviously. And so he dressed, and he was furious. But uh, we were on that big winning streak at that point in time, and. Uh, uh, the first quarter, I think, in the game, we were behind like 17 points, okay? And he, uh, all of a sudden, you know, this, we sort of got our second win. And uh, I think in that game, he had like 30-some rebounds, 20 block shots when they didn't keep track of block shots. Um, he was just ridiculously great that night. He was so mad. And we end up winning a game by a huge amount of money, but I mean, not money, but a huge number of points. And he was obviously in the locker room after that. He was so mad. I mean, it was it was actually kind of funny after after the fact. But uh, uh, we end up winning the game by I mean, 25, 30 points after being behind, real huge in the first quarter. But that team was capable of doing things like that, and obviously having someone there to. A rebound and, and uh, a rim protector that's so important for teams. It was just uh, just amazing uh, uh, to watch how he played that night. But uh, he was he was a character and uh, uh, you know, gone before his time, like a lot of people are. And uh, as I say, someone I really enjoyed and and, uh, and played against played against him with him, and uh, uh, he could just take over basketball teams, uh, games like no team, uh, like no player could. Jerry West with us, his book, West by West. True or false, Jerry, what you think? I know it's just a gut opinion. The 20,000 women, true or false for Wilt? Well, I would say false, okay? <laughs> uh, a big, and a big false, okay? <laughs> a real big false. Yeah. He was, uh, I always said he was the most, uh, he was the biggest storyteller I've ever met in my life. He once said that he drove from New York City to San Francisco in 23 and a half hours. So, um, you know, I, I think that was another exaggeration that uh, I wouldn't want to get into. But he's uh, uh, he was a character, and uh, as I say, I think he, um, when you're around him a little bit, uh, some of the things that he would do um, were 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 really funny. Okay, and he he was a but uh, you know players used to try to get him wild up, our players try to get him wild up by saying that, you know, this guy was better than him, that guy was better than him. So it was really pretty funny that uh, to be around him uh, as much as you were and as, as intimate as the relationships are in the locker room. You coached Kareem, you played with Wilt. Who could dominate a game and just take it over more? Well, they were both, they were both uniquely different, okay? Uh, I would say this, I think that for because of the way Kareem played, uh, Wilt would just, he could just completely dominate a game. Uh, I mean, he would, you know, every time down the floor, he wanted the ball, he wanted to score. But Kareem was uh, a player that would, 
he would score more through the offense, more through movement. Uh, he was a he was just he was different than than Wilt, but uh, from an effective standpoint, they were both great. Jerry West was greater than great. But Jerry West, who was also greater than great, the great. I, I remember growing up watching Jerry play, and uh, I, I went down to the old Keel Auditorium when you came here to play the Hawks, Jerry, on a Sunday afternoon, and it was one of the greatest thrills of my life watching you and Elgin Baylor and those Lakers. Even though the Hawks uh, were, were, they hated the Lakers. We hated the Lakers in St. Louis, but we understood we understood greatness when we saw it. Well, you know, as I say, I've always felt that St. Louis. I, I remember when they left there, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, I felt badly for it because I felt it was a, a town that was always going to be good for sports and they have great, incredible uh, baseball support there. They support uh, the hockey team. Um, and it, it just, it's just a shame that, that the team, there's not a team there today because I, I think it would be a, a great town for basketball as it's grown. I think, you know, all the good colleges around there have, um, because of the enormous amount of publicity that these schools get, University of Kansas, all the great players they get there and have had there. Uh, to me, it was a, a, the next step to go from watching kids play in college to watching them go to the NBA and find out if they could really play as well as people thought they could play. But the NBA is the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate stopping ground or uh, proving ground for uh, for any college player, and some of these uh, college players who come out of college with these incredible uh, resumes, uh, it's amazing sometimes that they don't do nearly as well as people think they can. Jerry West has been our guest. We've uh, we've kept him way too long. Jerry, we appreciate your time. The book is West by West. I highly recommend it. Jerry, got to know John Shaw when he was here with the Rams. Always spoke so highly of you. Please tell him hello when you run into him. Well, he's a great friend of mine, and uh, and uh, I always look forward. We have lunch a couple times a week in Los Angeles. He's just a great guy and one of the smartest people I've ever been around in my life. And uh, it's just amazing uh, to me the people that you meet through sports and, and more importantly, the people you meet who work in other sports that uh, are executives in their own right and, and uh, to see how dissimilar the, uh, the sports are but how really similar they are in terms of organizing and uh, running a franchise and giving an opportunity to win on a level that uh, all fans want to see. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. West by West is the book. The great Jerry West has been our guest. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care now. That was the great Jerry West visiting with us a few years back. What a fascinating conversation. And for anyone out there who uh, had listened to the entire interview in his segment where he talked about his depression and how it affected him, uh, it's quite a, quite an experience. But, man, those stories with Wilt Chamberlain are great. But, of course, the 20,000 women, no one believes that, Wilt. <laughs> it's it's impossible, and no one ever believed it, but it was Wilt being Wilt. And what a character. A guy who could score 100 points in a game. Who knows? 20,000 women? Maybe so. But 100 points in one game? Jerry West played with the guy that scored 100 points in a game, and his running mate in the backcourt was Elgin Baylor. And Elgin Baylor scored 75 in a game one time. And a player that he drafted, Kobe Bryant, scored 80-plus points in a game one time. Something about Jerry West, he just attracted greatness. Great players around him, great players who could help him win, and yet they only won one title. Imagine losing eight NBA championship finals. 
and winning the one. That would that would send you into retirement. But we thank Jerry for the visit. We also thank the good folks at Monster Energy Drink, that punch of energy that you need to get going. You need Monster. You can unleash the beast for the weekend. Get yourself Monster Energy Drink cans and enjoy yourself on the weekend. We're going to head out of here now, but we're back fighting the good fight for you Monday morning at 7 o'clock with our current events show right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. And then, of course, at noon on Monday, back here in the Sports Saddle, and we'll be bringing you the Monster Energy Drink, Kevin Slayton, uh, uh, King's Court. So we're back after the weekend. We'll see you on Monday, folks. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. So long, everyone. Love you, Maureen. I'm sorry, my sister. Love you. <laughs> Love you, too. We'll see you on Monday.